Mark has a twofold purpose in writing his gospel Christology and discipleship. Who is Jesus? And what does true, obedient discipleship to Jesus look like? That's his concern. But not everyone wants to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. And with the exception of demons so far in Mark's gospel, no one perceives Jesus to be who Mark says he is. The Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord, more powerful than John the Baptist, the one who both gives and receives the Spirit of God, the Chosen One who comes to do battle with the powers of evil, who has angels at his side. That's who Jesus is. And though God is in their midst in the person of his beloved son, the divine bridegroom, the Lord of the Sabbath, the religious authorities are offended by Jesus. Uh, This man doesn't keep the man-made tradition of the elders when it comes to fasting, right? He's an habitual Sabbath breaker. He associates with moral and social scum. And he arrogates to himself the prerogatives of God alone by personally forgiving people's sin. And all these offenses have been uh, cataloged now by the religious authorities. And and now their perception of Jesus is calloused, it's rebellious, it's sinful, it's homicidal. In fact, as we'll see today, some teachers of the law come down from Jerusalem to check out Jesus' ministry, and they go past the point of no return. They go past the point of God's forgiveness by blaspheming the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who anointed the Son and empowered Him for His earthly ministry. Against the testimony of their own conscience, they say that Jesus is empowered by Satan. Now, the common people of Israel, uh, they aren't antagonistic towards Jesus at all. They love Jesus like a glutton loves a free lunch. Jesus is a miracle worker who heals all of their diseases. He's performing exorcisms everywhere he goes. But there is no repentance on the part of the crowds. There's no perception of who Jesus really is or the nature of the kingdom that he inaugurates. If you look at your bulletins, there's a handout here. How do you perceive Jesus? The the ethnically diverse crowds perceive Jesus to be a miracle worker, a genie, but they never repent and prepare for the dawning of the kingdom. Demons, they perceive Jesus for who he truly is. He is the son of God. Jesus' family perceive him to be a man who has lost his faculties. Against the testimony of their conscience, the teachers of the law say Jesus is empowered by Satan. All kinds of different perspectives on this. Friend, how do you perceive Jesus? Because there's only one correct way. And by correct, I mean in accordance with what God has revealed in the Bible. What did we just sing? What you think of Christ is the test, right? To try both your state and your scheme. That is, the state of your soul, your salvation, justification or condemnation, and your scheme, your your plan to be reconciled with God, if you think even you have to be reconciled to God. 
What you think of Jesus Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. As Jesus appears in your view, as he is beloved or not, so God is disposed to you, and mercy or wrath are your lot. I mean, you don't want to be singing lines like that cavalierly, do you? Today, all of us are going to be confronted with the real Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture. But we'll also be confronted with the dreadful blindness of human sin, a moral blindness that's natural to us all, a blindness that only God can dispel, a blindness that twists and distorts and perverts even God's perfect revelation of himself, his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. So if you look at point number one, the ethnically diverse crowds perceive Jesus to be a miracle worker, a genie, but they never repent and prepare for the dawning of the kingdom. Have you ever heard of Werner von Braun? Uh, He's a controversial figure, but von Braun was the central figure in Nazi Germany's rocket development program. He was responsible for the design and development of the deadly V-2 combat rocket, the world's first ballistic missile. And in the last years of the war, as the Red Army was closing in on Germany from the east, von Braun packed up all his notebooks. There was actually tons of them. Uh, He crossed American lines and he surrendered. He deliberately surrendered to the Americans. And understandably, the Americans were delighted to have this man. They did not want the Soviets getting their hands on this valuable asset. And this guy is the father of the ballistic missile. A few years later, von Braun brought plans that he had developed to the American government for a multi-stage rocket that could enter Earth's orbit. A rocket which could, in theory, fly a person into orbit around the moon. This had been von Braun's dream since childhood. This is why he became a rocket scientist. But the American government at that time couldn't have cared less. Flying to the moon was a complete waste of time. It served no practical purpose. So they took his moon rocket design and got von Braun working instead on the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Program. So don't tell us about this rocket getting people to the moon, von Braun. We want to use this technology to drop nuclear warheads on Russia from outer space. I probably didn't do a very good job, but that's the closest earthly parallel I could think of for how the crowds react to the miracles that Jesus performs, right? In both, in both cases, something which is supposed to serve another purpose entirely is perverted on a grand scale. In the eyes of the people, Jesus is merely, he is just an itinerant faith healer. What did we read in the first 13 verses of Mark's prologue, right? They're not seeing any of that. What's the witness of John the Baptist? They're not seeing any of that. This man is a magic genie. He'll exercise your demons and he'll heal you. Verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all that he was doing, 
many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Medumia, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. See, the miracles that Jesus performs in the power of the Spirit, they sort of act like a two-edged sword. On the one hand, it attracts people to him, which is, which is good. That's a good thing. People hear there is a man who can heal the sick, cleanse lepers, raise paralytics, cast out demons, and they come to him in droves. But Jesus isn't going about the country performing miracles just to be gracious and nice. These mighty acts of power attest to who Jesus is, truly is. They're signs. These miracles have significance. They're silent sermons. I mean, go to any culture during any period of time and you will find miracle workers, healers, exorcists. But Jesus came to preach repentance in the nearness of the kingdom of God, the rule of God over the hearts and lives of his covenant people. That's why he came. Performing miracles and exorcisms and healing people attest to this fact that the kingdom has been inaugurated in his person, in his ministry. There's a unique authority claim involved with this. But all through Mark's gospel, and you want to just store this in your back pocket. All through Mark's gospel, the crowds, which are mentioned 40 times in the gospel of Mark, never once do the crowds repent or prepare for the kingdom. Not once. They only ever think in terms of relief from pain and affliction. And in Mark 15, it's the crowd who shouts out, crucify him, crucify him. And folks, nothing's changed. We often, often, to our shame, hear Christians telling unbelievers, their friends, their family, come to Jesus because because Jesus can fix your marriage. Jesus can make you rich. Jesus can make you healthy. Jesus can free you from anxiety and worry. Where you perceive your greatest lack, Jesus can fill it and give you happiness and abundance. But that very pragmatic use of God demonstrates a clear lack of interest in God himself, doesn't it? After all, who cares? Who really cares what a genie is like? Genies serve one purpose, to grant us our wishes and make us prosperous and happy. So, pay close attention later in the service as we witness two baptisms today. You won't be hearing anything like that from our two baptismal candidates today, Stephanie and PJ. Uh, They both will state it plainly, and they're going to state it with great gratitude. I came to Jesus in faith, first of all, for forgiveness. I came to Jesus in faith primarily to have my sins punished in his death on the cross, a vicarious sacrifice. There will be no talk in these testimonies of where I once lacked purpose in life, Jesus filled it with happiness and abundance, and that is primarily why I converted to Christianity. Yes, don't mistake me, there is is unspeakable joy in being a Christian. 
But that joy flows downstream from what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. That comes first. Jesus is very popular. He is attracting huge crowds. Verse 9, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. In my experience, there are certain paintings by artists you never find in honest-to-goodness stores, but only at yard sales and stalls along the side of the road outside of places like Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm talking about paintings of a very Aryan-looking Jesus sitting on a rock with a shepherd's crook in one hand, a snow-white lamb in another, and a couple of smiling kids on his knees, right? We've probably all seen those. That is a very, very skewed picture. It's a skewed caricature, and it's certainly not what we're seeing here. This is more like those shameless celebrities and fans who press in, you know, on a celebrity at the airport and just try to take their picture. It's terrible. And notice, there doesn't seem to be the slightest understanding of or concern for who Jesus is or his mission. Nothing. The people are pushing forward in a frenzy to touch him that they might be healed. They have all these diseases. They're coming, heal us, heal us. And not only are the crowds large, they're gathered from an extensive geographical region. John the Baptist's ministry was never this big. People are, not, people are coming to Jesus not only from Galilee, but from Judea and from Edomia, 120 miles to the south, and from points east of the Jordan River, and from Tyre and Sidon, 50 miles in the north. And equally remarkable is the ethnic diversity of these crowds. The areas of Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, those, those are principally Jewish territories. Uh, Edomia and Transjordan, the Transjordan are mixed Jew-Gentile regions. But Tyre and Sidon, those are, those are Gentile regions. Which means we're seeing a transition here in God's economy of salvation. We're seeing a salvation historical shift. A shift which comes to a head four years down the road with the conversion of Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10. You'll recall Cornelius and his household are uncircumcised Gentiles. That is a big, big deal. But when they believe in Jesus, God pours out his Holy Spirit upon them all, just as he did with the Jews at Pentecost. And we're getting a foretaste of that right here. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is ministering to Gentiles, non-Jews. Even so, the ethnically diverse multitudes aren't perceiving him properly. Jesus is still, he's just a miracle worker. He's a faith healer. He's an exorcist. But that is not how the forces of evil perceive him. Look at verse 11. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. And what we see here, what the crowds are witnessing, is the conflict. The conflict between the kingdom of God and the dominion of Satan. It's going head to head. The conflict between the one anointed with God's spirit and those held captive by unclean spirits. This is active war, and Jesus pushes back the kingdom of Satan. In the words of Isaiah 61, Jesus proclaims freedom for the prisoners and sets the oppressed free. 
or in the words our Lord will speak in verse 27, in his exorcisms, Jesus is plundering the strong man's house, Satan being that strong man. And, and notice our Lord's authority over the demons, right? He doesn't just cast them out. He forbids them to speak. He forbids them to declare to the people that he is the Son of God. And we know why from a few sermons back. Because what these demons are declaring, it is the truth. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King of Israel. But their demonic confession at this point in time does more harm than good. You recall us talking about this a few weeks back? Uh, That title, the Son of God, Messiah, it's so wrapped up in people's minds with a conquering militaristic figure, a political figure, the Davidic king, 2.0. But this king of Israel, this Son of God, he dies on a Roman cross. Which means any understanding of who Jesus really is at this early point in his ministry is premature because only at the cross can Jesus rightly be known for who he is. Right? Every confession that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel, it begs the question, what kind of Messiah? What kind of Son of God? But before the cross, those categories just aren't there. Every confession at this point in salvation history is a premature half-truth, and thus false. That's why Jesus forbids the demons to speak, even though they're saying the truth. Our brother and sister, Stephanie and PJ, our baptismal candidates today, they'll be making a confession today at their baptism. They'll be making a confession. They'll do so in their testimony, as they tell us, in their own words, The circumstances around how Jesus saved them from their sin. But also, each will answer a direct question that I put to them in the baptismal tank before they're submerged. A question that moves ahead in time from what we read here in Mark chapter 4. This is what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask PJ, Stephanie, so here's your heads up right now, okay? PJ, Stephanie, do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died to pay the just penalty for your sin and three days later was raised bodily to life? So do you see? No one's making that kind of confession yet in Mark chapter 3, right? Not even the demons are saying that yet. And before they're submerged, I'll ask both candidates, PJ, Stephanie, are you prepared to deny yourself and follow Jesus, no matter the cost to your comfort or your reputation? Because if the answer to that first question is yes, the second must follow. Right? And this is a question for all of us, friends, all of us. Do you, do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? who died to pay the just penalty for sin and three days later was raised bodily to life? Are you prepared, friend, to deny yourself and follow Jesus Christ no matter the cost to your comfort or your reputation? Point three, the calling of the apostles. Verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And notice that just like the calling of 
the first four disciples in chapter 1, the initiative here lies with Jesus. They're not handing in resumes and saying, can you take me? He just, he calls them. Verse 14, he appointed 12 that they might be with him. And that's important for at least two reasons. First, these 12 men were trained by Jesus. And a major component of their training was what today we would call mentoring. Not merely the impartation of a message and a commission, but shaping people by example, as well as precept as to how they should live. Jesus is teaching them by example how to live. Second, these 12 were able to bear witness to the facts concerning Jesus from the first days of his public ministry. They were there. They saw it all. Peter, the apostle Peter, he understood the importance of this point later when, do you recall when they, they sought to replace Judas Iscariot in, in the first chapter of Acts? Um, because the revelation of Jesus Christ isn't just some private mystical experience. It was a unique historical event that demanded witnesses. You have to witness it if you're going to be an apostle. So the apostle Peter says in Acts 1, 21 to 22, Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord was living among us. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection and replacing Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Mark 3.14, Jesus appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And, and rather than, I think, go down just this list of names, man by man, a better approach might be to consider these men from their perspective, from the perspective of their importance to early church life as a whole, as a group, as, as the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. These men, they serve an indispensable salvation historical function, which is why Mark goes to, to the bother of actually writing out their names. Each of these men, their names are very important because when Jesus ascends to glory... When Jesus ascends to glory, there is no New Testament, right? Uh, Jesus never wrote a single thing. Think about that. We have in our possession not one word written by Jesus of Nazareth. So in God's sovereign plan, who's going to be the leaders of the fledgling church now that Christ is up on high? Who will teach the world about Jesus? These men, these 12. And then the Apostle Paul. Verse 16. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Oranges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. God used his disciples, he used his apostles as witnesses, and then as vessels, as vehicles of his special revelation. These men will be given authority to speak and teach and write on behalf of Jesus. These men aren't doing that yet, not here in chapter 3. That happens later, after Jesus ascends to heaven. But during Jesus' earthly ministry... These men all sit at his feet and learn from him as he mentors them. And then in chapter 6 of Mark's gospel, they're sent out. 
They're sent out to preach repentance and to cast out demons. This is before Jesus goes to the cross. They're sent out to preach repentance, cast out demons. And and in that earlier chapter 6 stage, that's all they're doing. But their job description changes dramatically after Jesus ascends to glory and the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost. Just very quickly, this is important. Turn to John chapter 14. If you're using the church Bible at the back, it's on page 1081. John 14, 26. This is that, that famous scene, the upper room discourse. This scene takes place the night before Jesus dies. The Lord Jesus will be on the cross in 12 hours' time as he's saying this, okay? John 14, 26. And, and this word is specifically directed towards the 11 apostles. Jesus promises, 14, 26, but the advocate... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And that's important because all throughout the four Gospels, the disciples constantly, they fail to get, they fail to understand Jesus and his ministry. They don't really have a clue. Jesus says all sorts of stuff, things like, abide in me, the true vine, as I abide in the Father. And the disciples all nod their heads and say to each other, boy, our rabbi sure says a lot of deep, mysterious stuff, doesn't he? I don't have a clue what that just meant, but it sounded pretty religious and it sounds good. But uh, they don't have a clue what he's getting at, which is why one of the Spirit's principal tasks after Jesus is glorified in the new situation introduced after his resurrection is to supernaturally remind the apostles of Jesus' teaching and to help them grasp its biblical significance. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is going to teach the apostles what all that deep, mysterious stuff meant. And this is how the first witnesses, the 11 disciples, come to an accurate, an accurate and full understanding of the truth of Jesus Christ. It's not because they're theological geniuses. They're not theological innovators. But because the Holy Spirit teaches them. And they, in turn, pass it on to the church And that's how we get our New Testaments. So, when you read through this list of names, loved ones, rejoice. Rejoice and praise God that he did not leave us without a witness to the glorious works of Christ Jesus. Thank God for the faithfulness of these men. Thank God for their willingness to lose everything for the sake of the gospel that we might have these words of life. Point four, Jesus' family perceives him to be a man who has lost his faculties. Verse 20, then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Turn quickly, or I can just read it, but Matthew 13, 54. Matthew 13, 54. Coming to his hometown, Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. So this is, his, this is the hometown, you know, the local boy comes home. He's preaching, teaching the synagogues, people that he grew up with, people who know his family, right? And they say this. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? 
Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Every Christian today who believes Jesus is who the Bible says he is naturally finds it very interesting that our Lord was the eldest of at least six children. Four boys, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and at least two girls, though his younger sisters are never named or numbered, so there could be more. These would be his half-brothers and sisters. Mark 3.21 When his family heard about this, that is, when they heard about Jesus' provocative actions, his his blasphemous claims to authority, so-called, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. Now, there is a lot that we could say about that sort of text, but one thing is certain. The shape, the shape that Jesus' public ministry takes it, it blindsides his family. They, don't, they didn't see this coming. Not even Mary, his mother. Which is interesting. I mean, hadn't she miraculously conceived Jesus as a virgin? Hadn't the angel Gabriel, 30 years before, said, You will conceive and give birth to a son. He will be great And he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. An angel told her that. Mary must have some very preconceived notions concerning how Jesus will go about fulfilling those promises in his lifetime if she's acting this way now, because of what Jesus actually says and does, the actual shape of his ministry completely blindsides her. We saw this the other week, didn't we, with John the Baptist. Try putting yourself in his shoes. Once Jesus begins his public ministry, John the Baptist, I mean, the one, the very man who points to Jesus and tells his disciples in John's gospel, behold, that guy right there, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. After Jesus actually begins his ministry, he sends messengers to to ask Jesus, because now John's in prison. He he asks him, are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? And Jesus responds, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Mary is stumbled on account of Jesus. Read over the first three chapters of Mark's gospel again. To his family's thinking, to Mary's thinking, the good news that Jesus is preaching, his announcement of the dawning of God's kingdom, all the miracles he's performing, his healings, his exorcisms, forgiving people their sins, his confrontation with the religious authorities, it all goes to prove that Jesus is out of his mind. It's amazing. This family has been in intimate contact with God in the flesh for 30 years. They still don't believe. They still don't recognize the the day of God's visitation. They perceive nothing of who Jesus really is. How blind we human beings are in our natural, fallen, sinful state. It's not because they're stupid and we're so smart. 
Jump down to verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Yeah, right, to take him away, right? He's obviously out of his mind. That's why they've come. What's Mary doing? Just step back for a moment, right? Guys, be guided by the biblical text, not religious tradition or superstition or cultural custom. What's Mary actually doing here? She's doing all that she can to keep Jesus from his God-appointed mission. And she's enlisted her other sons to help bring him home before Jesus embarrasses himself and the family further or maybe winds up getting killed. Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother which is probably precisely the sort of thing that makes his family think Jesus has lost his mind, saying stuff like that. But Jesus isn't being some loveless jerk, right, who spits on family ties. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the divine king who mediates all of his father's sovereignty, yet who goes to the wretched, odious cross, right? Mary, Mary needs to radically change how she perceives her son. Her eternal soul depends upon it. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, his brothers, they need to completely change how they perceive Jesus. Their eternal souls depend upon it. Jesus still loves his family. He takes care of his mother while he's dying on the cross. He gives her a home to live in with the Apostle John. But things are different now that he's been anointed at his baptism by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, he won't allow his family to relate to him on the same level as they did before. It wouldn't be the loving thing to do. It wouldn't be loving. The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. And they too, they must repent and believe the good news and not try to derail his God-appointed mission. But this, this change now, when her son is 30, must have been extremely difficult for Mary. She's his mother, right? She'd born him, nursed him, taught him to speak. Watched him fall over as he learned to walk. And apparently had come to rely on Jesus as the family provider. Joseph doesn't appear to be in the picture at this point. It's thought by most commentators that Joseph is dead. And he's the eldest son. But now, at 30 years of age, Jesus has entered into the purpose for his coming into the world. Which means everything, even family ties must be subordinated to his divine mission. Mary must no longer view Jesus as other mothers view their son. She can no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. Just like every other person in the world, Mary must come to Jesus as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Her sin, 
her Savior. Mary mustn't dare presume to approach Jesus on an insider's track. And that applies to his half-brothers, too. But for no one could this lesson have been more difficult, I think, than for Mary. Perhaps this is part of the sword that Simeon said would pierce her soul in Luke chapter 2, verse 35. Here we read that with the coming of Jesus and the inauguration of his kingdom, the world is now divided into two types of people. Those who sit on the inside at Jesus' feet and who do God's will, and those who stand on the outside with false assumptions and blind perceptions. Verse 33, Who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Friend, is that you? That's the question this test asks. Is that you? Is Jesus your brother? Can you say that? PJ and Stephanie, uh, they're planting their flags firmly in the ground this day of their baptism and saying, we're with Jesus. We're with Jesus. We're those who sit on the inside at Jesus' feet and who do God's will. But Mark saves the worst false perception for last, and it's such a deliberately, a deliberately wicked and false perception of Jesus it cannot be forgiven. It's an unforgivable sin. Look at point five. Against the testimony of their conscience, that's very important, against the testimony of their own conscience, the teachers of the law say Jesus is empowered by Satan. Verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, another name for Satan. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And notice, they're not denying Jesus' power to perform miracles. They're they're not accusing him of being an imposter. He's some kind of charlatan. Rather, they impugn the source of his power, right? They ascribe the source of Jesus' power to Satan rather than to God the Holy Spirit. He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. And in response to this charge, Jesus tells the parable of the house divided. This is the third parable of Mark's gospel. Verse 23. So Jesus called them over, and over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. It's a, it's a very logical parable. He's saying, guys... Think about what you're saying, right? If my work is diametrically opposed to Satan, then how can I be empowered by Satan? If what I say is true, if what you say is true, rather, then Satan is clearly working at cross purposes with himself, which will only hasten his downfall. Verse 26, and if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. That means Jesus is saying, my mission is not fulfilled by compromise or coexistence with evil. No, my mission is fulfilled by invading Satan's territory and conquering Satan. Satan is the strong man who is the head of the house. 
but I'm stronger than the strong man of the house. I tie up the strong man. I bind him, and then I plunder his goods. I carry off his possessions, which in this context means Jesus exercises Satan's demons. And then comes perhaps the most sobering, disturbing words our Lord utters in his entire public ministry. And he begins his solemn utterance with an appeal to his own authority because there is no higher authority. Verse 28, truly, I tell you. Just, and just hear that, right? I mean, if I were to say something like, hey, guys, I tell you this. It's like, get out of here. No, but Jesus, again, does it with a straight face. Truly, I tell you, Jesus, the Messiah, right? The Son of God, the Lord of the universe, the anointed one. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. And what Jesus speaks of here, what he refers to as an eternal sin, it is the willful assigning of what is unambiguously the Spirit's work in his ministry to the devil. It's the self-conscious and malignant disputing of the indisputable. It's against their conscience. Right? D.A. Carson writes this, The New Testament reveals how close, how close one may come to the kingdom, tasting, touching, perceiving, understanding. But it also shows that to come this far and reject the truth is unforgivable. So it is here. Jesus charges that those who perceive that this, his ministry is empowered by the Spirit, and then for whatever reason, we're not told, but for whatever reason, whether spite, jealousy, arrogance, because they hate his guts, ascribe it to Satan. They put themselves beyond the pale of forgiveness. For them, there is no forgiveness. And that is the verdict of the one who has authority to forgive sins. The teachers of the law clearly see the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' ministry, and they believe it too. They believe it. They don't need Jesus to tell them this parable about the house divided. They know how ridiculous it is to say that Satan is casting out demons. They can see the Spirit's power, but they hate Jesus' guts. So they say he casts out demons by the power of Satan, even though they know it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, to clarify, the unpardonable sin is not an accidental, uh, impulsive, or unguarded slip of the tongue. Thank God. (laughs) It involves knowledgeable, willful rebellion against the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees have explicitly seen the Spirit working through Jesus, yet reject his utterly obvious work. Their denial is the decided response to the overt testimony of the Spirit. It's not out of ignorance. It's not out of indecision. It's deliberately repudiating the truth about Jesus, again, in violation of their own conscience, their own understanding. But it's, it's impossible for a mere human to know with certainty with certainty that a fellow human has committed the unpardonable sin and thus is beyond repentance. Right? Many people who appear to have committed this sin later repent and believe. 
But those who do commit the unpardonable sin and are, they're, they're sort of similar to apostates in that they have resolutely rejected the truth and they are beyond repentance. The, the fate of those who commit the unpardonable sin parallels the fate of apostates in at least three passages we read on apostasy. Um, think of Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Hebrews 10, 29. One who has trampled underfoot the Son of God has outraged the Spirit of grace. In 1 John 5, 16, there is a sin that leads to death. In each of those three passages, there is a self-conscious perception of where the truth lies and the light that shines, and then there is a willful, willful turning away from it, just as with this unpardonable sin in Mark chapter 3. And know this too, those who have committed the unpardonable sin aren't worried about it. So if you're sitting there worried that maybe I committed the unpardonable sin, praise God. If you're worried about that, you haven't committed it, obviously. These people, they're hardened in their unbelief. So if you're worried that you have committed the unpardonable sin, that is a reliable sign that you have not committed the unpardonable sin. If you're ashamed of your sin right now against God, as you sit there in that pew, then you have not committed the unpardonable sin. So instead of feeling hopelessly condemned, keep turning from your sins, keep trusting in Jesus Christ. If you are in Jesus, the Messiah, then there is no condemnation for you, Romans 8.1. But if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, if you're a skeptic, if you're a seeker, if you're not a Christian, then I want you to listen to me. Not believing the good news of Jesus Christ, not believing in what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin in Christ, and in consequence what he will accomplish, not believing that is sin. That's sin, not to believe. Not trusting in Jesus for salvation, that, that is sin. You may not have committed the eternal sin, the unpardonable sin, of knowingly, against your conscience, attributing the power of God's Spirit at work in Jesus Christ to Satan himself. But, hell is just as real a potential eternal destiny to you as if you had. And God is perfectly within his rights to hand you over to a, a terrible cycle of ever-increasing unbelief and idolatry and rebellion. Friend, take stock. How many thousands of times have you spurned the gospel? How many times have you heard the gospel preached and thought, ah, not yet. There's, there's more sinning to be enjoyed first. There's more autonomous freedom to explore. How many times have you let the elements of the Lord's Supper pass you by with some exceedingly lame excuse for your own belief? Friend, it's not God's job to keep pursuing you. We read in Romans 1 that those who suppress the truth of God by their wickedness, God gives over to the penalty of their sin. That penalty being a terrible cycle of ever-increasing unbelief, idolatry, and rebellion. Paul says that three times in Romans chapter 1, verses 24, 26, 28. God gives people's repentance boat a push down the stream and over the waterfall. And perhaps you've seen the beginning of this. The sin and wickedness that you indulge in right now would have surprised you. It would have, it would have sickened you at an earlier stage in your life. 
but now you're used to it. You've grown accustomed to filth. You quite enjoy it because you become more confirmed in your rebellion against God. That's what happens when people resist Jesus year after year after year after year. And they suppress the truth of God by their wickedness. And they move farther away, farther away from the light, both from a holy living perspective and from a belief perspective. There develops patterns of sinful behavior, ways of thinking, both from a holy living perspective and from a belief perspective that is just too terrible to describe. And maybe you can see that in your own heart right now. You're not living, you're not thinking, you're not believing the things that you did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. You're a different person now. You're much more hardened in your response to the gospel and to Jesus Christ, to what I'm preaching here today. Maybe you're really, really offended by what I'm saying today. And you've already heard this message 100 times before. Friend, humble yourself before God. Pray that he might give you grace to see that these things are true that I'm preaching today. Pray for grace that you would perceive Jesus biblically. What you think of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of Jesus. As Jesus appears in your view, as he is beloved or not, so God is disposed to you. And mercy or wrath are your lot. And for those of us who, by God's enabling grace, have seen our great sin, we've seen our great rebellion against God and have been forgiven of all of that sin, all of that rebellion in Jesus Christ through faith in him to those here today who are the mothers and brothers and sisters of Jesus because they do God's will. I would say this, and, and Stephanie and PJ, I'm saying this to you specifically as you start your Christian pilgrimage. Strive to cultivate gratitude and humility for the gift of perceiving the truth about Jesus and his gospel. You have the awesome, awesome privilege of perceiving the faithful Son of God, the King of Israel, our crucified Lord as he truly, truly is, as his Spirit has shown you in his word. Jesus' grace and truth shines before your divinely enlightened eyes like a thousand suns, not because you are more spiritually attuned than anybody else in this room, or more lovable, or more deserving, or more intelligent. God shows mercy and compassion to those who need it, but who don't deserve it, and who could never earn it, right? That's grace. That's unmerited favor. And it's God's grace at the start, God's grace to the end, God's grace in the middle. Grace without mixture, grace without addition, grace that allows no boasting, grace that precludes all glorying but in the Lord. Amen.